Okay, we're doing a series on the gospel, and namely, uh, not just in terms of the propositions, the gospel comes to us through the Bible and wonderful propositions, but also comes to us through these powerful pictures, and today's picture is Israel. Israel is a name. It's, it's the name that God gives to his people. And we've said this before, names in the Bible are more than just labels attached to someone. A name literally spells out a person's identity, one's destiny, one's calling. Does anybody know what Israel means? Yep, some of you are getting it. To wrestle with God. Because what God wants is a people who will wrestle with him. So let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 32, uh, beginning at verse 22. Because we love to honor God by standing for the reading of his word, if you could do that, uh, let's stand right now. Genesis 32, starting at verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took two, two wives, Rachel and Leah, his two maidservants, his 11 sons, and crossed the ford at the Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. And Jacob said, what is your name? And he replied, why do you ask me my name? You know my name. <laughs> and then he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Penuel, and he was limping because of his hip. This is God's word. You can be seated. So let's find our place in the story. If, if, if you know anything about the story of Jacob... Uh, when Jacob gets to this place, he's been on this long journey. 20 years before this, he left home. He left his father. He left his brother. He went to a faraway country. Jacob is a prodigal. He's a prodigal who leaves his father, who leaves his home. 
In fact, the text uses um, this rich imagery to describe Jacob's life as he departs. Um, It's not in the text we read, but it's 20 20 years before when he leaves. It, It says, and as Jacob left, the sun set on Jacob. That's a powerful picture. The sun is now setting on Jacob's life. One, because his life is a total mess. He's made it a mess. He's robbed his brother, cheated him of his birthright to the point where his brother wants to kill him. He's deeply disappointed his father. And and he leaves with this massive heart wound that his father has caused because his father always loved his brother Esau more than him. And yet in those 20 years away from home, Jacob becomes a man during this period. He marries, he has 11 sons, the 12th is on on the way, he has a daughter, he becomes incredibly successful, he's amassed much wealth for himself, and now it's time for him to go home. Why does he go home? Because in Genesis 31, verse 3 and 13, God tells him, go back. Go back home, Jacob. In fact, the word go back here in the original language is uh, the Hebrew word shuv or shuvah, which means to repent. It's time for this prodigal to return home. It's time for Jacob to do the most difficult thing in his life, to face his brother, to face up to his sin, and all the consequences of his sin, and to to repent. Now, as Jacob makes his way home, and we didn't read this as well, um, he's making his way towards Esau because repentance runs through Esau. In fact, Esau is a big detour on the journey home. But because this is not just about returning home, but because this is is about repentance, uh, the first thing that Jacob must do is is face his brother Esau. And verse 7 of chapter 32 tells us that as he's getting closer to Esau, Jacob is in utter terror. He's scared out of his mind. He's horrified. And so what he does is he sends servants bearing gifts. In fact, there's three waves of of, of these gifts that he's going to give to his brother Esau. Each consists of abundance of flocks and goats and and sheep. Um, Commentators uh, have suggested that what Jacob actually gives his brother Esau would be the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars today. And with each wave, uh, the servant would bow before Esau and say to my Lord Esau from Jacob, your slave. Now, the most used word in in Genesis 32 is the word face. And I want us to see that. Because face is the thing that captures Jacob's longing. If you look at verse 20, you're not going to see face because face is translated out of it. But verse 20 literally reads like this. This is Jacob's longing. He says, may I wipe the hatred from Esau's face with the gift that goes ahead of my face. And afterwards, perhaps when I see his face, that he will lift my face. This is a brother 
who so wants his brother to like him. Now, when Esau receives uh, the gift, the text says that he sets out with 400 men. 400 men in that day is a whole army. And now, even though Jacob has, has the beginnings of a relationship with God, Jacob is still Jacob. And if you know anything about Jacob's personality, it, 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 his name really sums up who this guy is. His name literally means heel grabber because uh, when he came out of, out of the womb, he was fighting with his twin brother Esau, and, and he was literally fighting in the wound, and then at his birth, he's grabbing his heel. To be a, a, a heel grabber in that day meant someone who's conniving, manipulative, sneaky, a bit deceitful. That's who Jacob is. Jacob is a schemer. Jacob is a guy who knows how to control and manipulate any situation for his own benefit. He knows how to take every matter into his own hands so that he wins. That's exactly what he's doing as he's approaching Esau. He's, he's scheming. Not only is he lavishing Esau with all these presents, but then as he gets still closer, he divides all his possessions into two camps. One goes way to the left, one goes way to the right. Because he's thinking, well, if Esau attacks this, I can still escape with the other. It's Jacob. Then he comes to the Jabbok River, which is the point of no return. Once he crosses the Jabbok, there's no going back on this whole thing. And that's where our text starts. Look at verses 22 and 23. That night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, two maidservants, his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his other possessions. What's this guy doing? He's hedging his bets. He sends all his possessions, including his wives and children, across the river so that if Esau attacks, he is still safe behind the buffer of not just his possessions, but even his own family. And this is the kind of guy that Jacob is. Jacob is always going to win. He's always going to get what he wants. Even if it's at great cost to everyone else around him, he's the one that wins the birthright from his brother. He wins the blessing from his dad. He wins Rachel from his uncle Laban. Um, this is Jacob, how he does life. Now, can you picture Jacob in this story? As evening turns to night, he can probably still hear the sheep and the goats off in the distance on the dangerous side of the river. And he's all alone in this self-manufactured safe zone. And all of a sudden, into that silence, into that still darkness, comes a stranger and just descends upon him, jumps him, and they fight. In fact, verse 24 says that Jacob and this stranger 
fight throughout the whole night. And Jacob probably in his mind thinks that this is either Esau or one of Esau's Navy SEALs. Um, that you, right? I mean, weren't you? But then as they wrestle and wrestle and wrestle, and I'll show you this from the text, Jacob starts to understand he's not wrestling with just a mere man. Because by the very end, look at verse 30. He calls this place Penuel, which literally means face of God, because here he says, I've seen the face of God, and yet my life was spared. In fact, spared doesn't really get at the meaning of the word. The word there is delivered. This is the place, this is the night where Jacob is finally delivered, where he's touched by God and he's changed. And that new name that he's given represents the new thing that's going on in Jacob's heart and life. And then look at the imagery of, of, of the next verse in verse 31. Love this. The sun rose above Jacob as he passed Penuel, and he was limping because of his hip. In fact, it literally reads, the sun rose upon Jacob as he crossed over, because that's what happened. His whole life has crossed over. It's crossed over from the old to the new. It's crossed over from Jacob to Israel because he's been touched by God. He's seen the face of God, and the sun is now rising on Jacob's life. Can you see him limping now into that sunrise as a changed man? Here's my question this morning. Have you met God? Have you personally encountered the living God where he's changed you and you're in the process of being changed? So I think this text teaches us how we can know. And it starts with verse 24, where it says, Jacob is alone. And I don't want to make too much of this, but at the same time, I don't want to gloss right over it, because God needs to get us alone. If we're going to have a, a life-changing encounter with God, it's something that's going to be intensely personal. And I know right now I'm saying stuff that contradicts other things that I say, uh, because yes, we are a church that's all for community, and we believe that God dwells in community, and we believe that community is the place where we need to be, because that is, too, the place where, where we, we are changed, where we hear God, where we get to know God. It's going to be through each other. But here's the deal, especially, I think, in a place like Crossworlds, where you have so many people who have this, this alive thing going on with God. It would be so easy to just come to a place like this, surround yourself with other people who have it going on with God, but still for you. 
There's nothing there. See, God must penetrate you. His word must penetrate you. His Christ must penetrate you. In fact, when I look at Jacob and I look at his life, I mean, his grandpa's Abraham. Think about that. His dad is Isaac. I mean, he's born into this family where God is doing all these amazing things. Yet Jacob is fighting it. I mean, his whole life is one big wrestling match. He's wrestling Esau already in the womb. Um, He's wrestling Esau when they're born. He's wrestling his brother constantly for the birthright. He's wrestling his dad for for the blessing. He wrestles Laban for his daughters. He's become so good at this. He knows how to outwit. He knows how to connive. He knows how to manipulate. He, He knows how to get everything that his heart desires. And yet here he is. He's still crying out, bless me. Bless me, bless me. And this is the cry of a desperate heart. Because despair comes not from being weary of too much suffering and difficulty. Despair comes from being weary of getting everything our heart always wanted. That's what leads to despair. Because when life is is reduced to just getting the life that we want and getting the things that we want, what happens when we actually get those things is that we find out that we just need more and still more and still more, and then we try the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and then whatever that thing is, at first it thrills us, it satisfies us, but over time the joy of that thing just kind of fades away. We're left in this state of boredom, needing the next great thing. And I'll tell you what's right around the corner of boredom is despair. And that's Jacob's life. And that's the world we live in. I mean, Jacob's struggle is our struggle. Maybe one of the most profound things I could say this morning is that life is a struggle. Life is one big struggle. I mean, just think about it. Think about how much we just struggle against each other. Think about how much struggling and wrestling there is with with, with the people that we love. Think about how we struggle to find our place. Think about how we struggle... Uh, to find our true self. Think about how we struggle to find true love. Think about how we struggle to find meaning and purpose. Think about how we struggle against our own nature, how we struggle with temptation, how we struggle with our lusts and our, and our desires, and how we struggle against all the spiritual forces that are real and are against us. I mean, one thing can be certain this morning, and that is that you are right now in a room full of fellow strugglers. So we don't have to play any games here. We don't have to pretend that we're not struggling. Because life is a struggle. And we all struggle. 
But see, we've been taught that struggle itself is bad, that it's something to be avoided at all costs. Because to us, struggle is a sign of unhealth, and it's a sign that something must be wrong, or something is really bad. But then, let's be honest. I'll speak for my own marriage. I'll speak for all the healthy marriages, all the healthy families that I've seen. It's not in spite of struggle, but it's because of struggle and through struggle. And the way that you know that you've really met God, that your life is being changed and transformed by a real God, there's going to be struggle. God's going to wrestle with you. I think that, that this is so opposite to all of the spirituality that we've been taught today. By the way, if you go to your local bookstore, the biggest section in the book, bookstore these days is spirituality. Spirituality is actually in. It's, it's, it's very popular. And, and the kind of spirituality uh, that, that we're taught these days is, is this new agey stuff that also is in, infiltrated in the church in its, in its Christian form. Um, all this higher power stuff that teaches us how to get centered and, and, and how to experience all these warm fuzzies of peace and tranquility. Look at the story. When God comes and encounters Jacob, there's nothing warm and fuzzy about this. He jumps him, knocks him off his center, and it's one big wrestling match, and then God smashes him and cripples him for life. Guys, this is how you know you're dealing with a real God and not just a God that you've made up in your mind. So many of us want God to conform to our likes and our wishes, but that isn't a real God. God is going to come into our lives. He's going to rearrange things. He's going to reorder things. He's going to push against us. He's going to push things in. He's going to push things out. He's going to push against things that need to be pushed, pushed against. I'll give you some examples right now. If you're living a sexually permissive life, I can guarantee you God is going to push against that. If your life right now is consumed with just money, possessions, and all that stuff, God's going to mess with you. If you're a selfish person and, and, and full of yourself, I'm going to tell you, God is going to wrestle you to the floor like he did me, and he's going to rub your nose in your pride. And so you may not like a God who intrudes on your personal life, but this is how you know you're dealing with a real God and not just a God that's a figment of your imagination. He's going to wrestle with you. Sometimes he will even wreck you. And the reason for this, he's not hurting you. He's helping you because he loves you. Now I'll tell you the part of the story that I like. Because my marriage, my family, I mean, you, 
You guys might all leave the church if you knew what went on inside of our, our deal at, in the Vinsalcoma household. We're spicy. <laughs> I mean, we, well, there's wrestling. I love it that Jacob wrestles back to a point where you don't even know who's winning. And guess what? God isn't just fine with it. God isn't just putting up with it. God loves it. So much so that God changes his name from Jacob to Israel, which means to wrestle with God. I thought about this. For thousands of years, we don't call them the Abrahamites. We don't call them the Jacobites. We call them the Israelites. We call them a people who wrestle with God. And see, what God is doing when he names them this is he's saying, would you please wrestle with me? Because what struggle and wrestling means, it means relationship. It it, it means that we care. It means that we love. Struggle means that we need help. Struggle means humility. It means, God, I don't always have you all figured out. And see, God knows what we are. God knows we're dust. God knows that we're finite. God knows that we're limited. God knows that we're fallen. God can handle our pushback. And if you've been taught that it's irreverent to push back on God or to question God or to be upset with God or to be confused and hurt by God, let me just give you a few examples. Abraham, when God comes to him and says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham's response is, how dare the God of the universe act that way? When's the last time you prayed that? Or Moses. God, if you wipe us out, you're going to be nothing but an embarrassment to the world. See, all the spiritual greats in the Bible had the chutzpah to wrestle with God, to stand toe-to-toe with him. Read the Psalms. Now let's go back to God. The, the, the reason why God is wrestling with Jacob is because God wants to take possession of Jacob's life. And that's why he wrestles with you. And that's why he wrestles with me. Because it, it, it's through the wrestling that we see in this story, this wrestling with God, that, that Jacob becomes Israel, that his life is transformed that this earthly, worldly, narcissistic, carnal striving at some point in this wrestling match is replaced with a whole new kind of striving. It's not a, 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 a pushing against or a striving against. It's a, it's a striving for. I mean, Jacob goes from wrestling against God to actually wrestling to get God. Are you wrestling today? Are you in the ring with God to get him? 
Now, I want to I show us how, how this whole transition and transformation happens where he goes from wrestling against God to wrestling to get God. Because in this wrestling match, it's crazy. Jacob's actually winning. He's winning. That's what Jacob does. He wins. But he's not wrestling with just any stranger. As dawn is about to break, the stranger takes out his baseball bat and smashes Jacob as hard as he can. Is that what the text says? No. He takes his little pinky and boop. (laughs) And in that moment, enormous power goes through that pinky and smashes Jacob's hip and cripples him for life. And it's in that moment Jacob is like, I'm wrestling with God. And for the first time, Jacob, this one who's been striving all his life, has in his own arms the thing, the one he's always longed for. And Jacob, it says, he clings to this stranger. And he says, I'm not going to let you go. And here now Jacob cries out what he's been crying out his whole life. Bless me. Would you bless me? And bless me now is no longer the cry of his heart to get his dad to love him or to have this status of the firstborn son or to get Rachel but bless me, bless me, bless me, I'm not going to let you go, is the cry of Jacob's heart for God. I want your presence. I want you. And see, this is how you know that you've met God personally, how you know if, if, if he's in your life and he's transforming you because you're going to go from wrestling against God to wrestling to get God. You're going to go from leveraging God to actually loving him. You're going to go from trying to control and manipulate God to just worshiping him. Is that you? Who, who, where are you in that spectrum? And see, the only way a Jacob heart can go from wrestling against God and, 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 and his whole life being a wrestling match to get the life that he wants to actually wrestling, to get the very thing his heart has been made for, which is God in his presence, to be in the arms of God and to see the face of God. The only way Jacob's going to learn this is through weakness. It's through losing. Jacob has to admit weakness. This is why in this wrestling match, the stranger asked, what is your name? Who are you, Jacob? In fact, this is the same question that his father asked him years before when Jacob disguised himself as Esau and his dad asked him, son, who are you? Who are you behind the disguise? 
And now 20 years later, the same question. And for the first time, Jacob is willing to acknowledge who he is. He says, my name is Jacob. And now the prodigal is coming to his senses. I am a, I'm a liar. I'm a manipulator. I'm a schemer. I'm a cheat. And it's like the stranger says, now that you have admitted who you are, let me tell you who I'm going to make you to be. You are going to be Israel. You're getting a new name that represents the new thing, the old that you're leaving, the new life that you're stepping into. And see, you and I, we will never get a new name, we'll never get a new heart, we'll never get a new life unless we can admit our weakness, unless we can acknowledge who we really are, that we need to stop playing this whole game of dress up, that we have to stop disguising ourselves to be something that we're really not, that we cease from playing this, this game of, of fake and phony, and we come to this place where we can just say, God, this is who I am. And see, really, to, to, to get to this point where we can actually admit weakness, I think for most of us, I know this is true for me, God actually has to make me weak. That's why God has to come into Jacob's life and how Jacob has to be utterly defeated by God. He needs to be broken, uh, that he needs to get God's touch, and that touch is God smashing him and crippling him for life. But I want us to see that, that it's, it's through this that Jacob actually for the first time wins. He wins everything his heart always wanted. He wins God. He wins God through losing. He wins by being utterly defeated, by, by God taking him to the end of himself where he has no more strength. And he's going to walk away from this place forever limping. I love what Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. He says, how do you know that you have met with God? You limp. You know you've met God when you limp, when you've been hurt, when you've been broken by God. But look at the picture in verse 31, in, in, or verse 30 and 31 so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was delivered. <laughs> and now the sun is not setting, but it's rising above him. As he passes Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. <laughs> Can you see this changed man leaving his old life? Because he's encountered God and he's limping as the sun is now rising on his life. And here's the deal. If, if, if this truly is the story of the prodigal, then, then where is the father on the porch running? Look at 33 verse 1. 
And Jacob, as he's limping into the sunrise, looks up. And there was Esau coming towards him. And look at verse 4. But Esau, (laughs) he sees Jacob, and he runs! (laughs) And he embraced him, and he threw his arms around his neck, and he kissed him, and they wept. (laughs) Grown men, because Esau now is an old man. Old men in this ancient culture never run. It's too undignified for an elderly person to run. And yet, here is Esau running, showing the love of the Father. I mean, the Father's love is the thing that has caused this great wound in Jacob's life, this great deficit, and the one now who is filling it The love of the father is now expressed to his brother Esau. I love it. He's the father on the porch running to him, showing him the love of God. Have you encountered God? Has he touched you? Has he broken you? Have you experienced him running to you like a father running off the porch as you return to him, as you bear all your weakness and stop playing dress up and stop trying to present your best, but you just come as you are. But that father's running to you because he loves you. And really, the story only points forward to a greater story. Because as much as God wants us to win through losing, to triumph through our weakness, uh, God, if, if, if he wants that for us, he's going to say, this is, this is what I am. This is how I also uh, win. In fact, even in our story, just consider even how God wrestles with Jacob. I mean, I want you to think about this. A way for me to put this is, how much does God weigh? Because the Hebrew word for weight is kavod. And kavod is a word that we translate as glory, which is why sometimes it's called the weight of glory. And here's the deal. The weight of God's glory as it came down upon Jacob, it should have crushed him. But when God wrestles with Jacob, he gives up his glory. He gives up his power. And he becomes a mere man. And this is where I ask the question, who's Jacob actually wrestling with? Jesus. And see, thousands of years after this wrestling match, Jesus is going to descend again. And once again, he's going to give up all his glory, all of his his weight. He's going to become utterly weak. And all that weight that should have crushed Jacob, that weight that that should have crushed us, all that weight, all God's glory, it's going to fall on Jesus. It's going to crush him. He's going to take the crushing so we get the little boop, the faithful wound of a friend. 
He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we're healed. Frederick Buechner calls the cross where Jesus, in utter weakness and defeat, that place that he wins. Um, and it's not only winning over losing, but it's winning through losing. And it's not just triumphing over defeat, but it's triumphing through defeat. Frederick Buechner calls this the magnificent defeat. And this is God's way. Have you met him? Have you encountered him? Do you love him? It's so simple. Come to him in, in, in your weakness and meet this glorious God in his weakness. And the sun will rise upon you and you'll be changed. This morning I've set aside communion only for prodigals, Jacobs, stony hearts that have not yet been penetrated by God. But today, you want to come home and you want your heart of stone to turn into a heart of flesh. I'll be back there. Let's pray. God, thank you for caring enough and loving us so much that you'd give up all your weight, all your glory, to wrestle with us. And God, thank you for taking the weight that crushes in our place. So God, that we could have those faithful wounds of a friend God, there's this morning, if there's anyone who's prodigal, who so walked away from you, but they want to come home. God, may they lay their life down. May they lay their striving down. May they undress all of their fake, phony, and just leave it. And may they come to you just as they are. And meet you in Jesus' name. I'll be over here. Is he a good, good father? Yes. I mean, he loves us so much. And let's live loved. Let's live loved. We're not having to strive and prove ourselves. And let's go show the love of the Father to a world that desperately needs to know him. All right, may the Lord bless you and protect you and make his Father's face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his face over you 
and give you his peace in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who showed us the face of God. Amen. Have a great week, you guys.